Thanks for being a part of our services today. My name is Sean Sears. I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Church. And today, uh, I wanna start by asking you if you've ever had the phenomenal feeling that comes from somebody getting on to you for doing something, and then you turn right back around and catch them doing the exact same thing they just told you not to do. That is a, <laughs> that feels so stinking good. And uh, conversely, there's nothing worse than than getting on to somebody and then them catching you doing that same thing. Like, like, like what's the easiest thing I can think of this happening is, is with me as a parent, getting on to my kids for chewing with their mouth open or not keeping their mouth closed while there's food in their mouth. And then my son looking at me and he goes, but daddy, you're talking to me right now with food in your mouth. Like you, you want to get mad at them when they do that, but you but you can't because they're they're absolutely right. We're looking at the story of a guy who comes to Jesus because he thinks like he's got something on him. And he brings us to Jesus to try to test him, to try to trick him. And what Jesus does is he goes, but there's food in your mouth, right? Like Jesus just turns it right back on the guy. And it's not that the guy's the bad guy of the story or anything like that. I mean, truthfully, he's a, he's a really decent person. He's, he's moral. Uh, he's successful. He's wealthy. He's well-known. He's a success, right? Uh, and he's rich. And he's religious. I mean, like this guy's the total package. I was talking about the teaching this weekend to somebody on the leadership team. She's a, a younger college girl. Uh, actually went to school at the same time as my daughter did. And she says, who is he? Who is he? As though he was just some guy in our church that she wanted to meet, right? And I was like, no, he's, she goes, oh, it's not a real guy. I'm like, yeah, it's a real guy. He just died a long, long time ago. Like, this is the kind of guy that you would want to be like. And if you met him for the first time, you might even be a little bit intimidated, by, right? You would let him date your daughter. He's a really, really decent person, or, or so he thought. And that's what we're going to be looking at. So if you got your Bible, go to Luke chapter 10. Now, Luke chapter 10 doesn't start with the story of Jesus meeting this guy. Luke chapter 10 starts by letting us know that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. He's going to be walking from northern Galilee all the way down through all of Israel down into the Judea region where he will go to Jerusalem. He'll ride into the city on a donkey. They'll wave palm branches. We celebrate Palm Sunday because of that day. He teaches a few times during that week and by Friday of that week, he's crucified on the third day, Friday, Saturday. On the third day, uh, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. So this is one of the last teaching opportunities Jesus is going to have in the, what, three, three and a half years of his entire ministry uh, on, on earth. So like he's just got a few moments left. He gathers his disciples together. There's a large crowd. Now there's the 12 apostles, but there's a larger crowd that follow him from time to time, uh, from town to town. And from that larger crowd, he gets 72 of them into 36 pairs and he sends them on the trip ahead of him and he gives them a couple of head, a couple of days head start. And their job is to proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand so that everywhere he goes, this is the last chance he's ever going to have of his public ministry outside of Jerusalem. And he wants to make sure that everybody who's interested in finding their way back to God has an opportunity to hear how they can be reconciled to God. Then right before he leaves, he gathers uh, whoever's remaining uh, and then he, and he prays this prayer out loud. Um, and, and they, sorry, the, the 72 come back and he's about to leave. 
And then he, and then he gathers them together for this prayer. Luke chapter 10, verse 21. At that same time, Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And he said, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things, these truths, these teachings from those who think themselves wise and clever. And I think that that's the distinguishing clause right there. It's their opinion of themselves. That's who God had hidden things from, is that they had thought themselves more highly than they ought to. And then he says, uh, and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. So there's an intentionality on God's part where God chooses to reveal himself to those who are humble and he hides himself from those who are proud. And that's kind of a consistent teaching both in the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Over the next several days and weeks as Jesus walks from Galilee to Jerusalem, he's going to be teaching how that the kingdom of God calls people from greed to generosity, from selfishness to selflessness, from anger to forgiveness. And he's going to show how those who are outcast can become friends, how those who are lost can become found, and how orphans can become family. And that the only requirement in this process is humility. Without getting to the place where we will humble ourselves and recognize that the greatest problem to us, the greatest threat to us is the sin that is in us, we'll never be drawn by God's spirit to a place of humility where we'll call out to God for forgiveness and to be reconciled to him. So humility seems to be the key. There's other verses that say that God will exalt the humble, but he will abase the proud. And that's one of the elements that we see in the story that we're looking at uh, today. Then Jesus, that's the prayer that he makes in front of everybody. Then it says he pulls just his disciples together and, and then tells them a little bit more in Luke chapter 10, verse 23, where it says, then when they were alone, he turned to his disciples and he said, blessed are the eyes that see what you have seen. I tell you, many prophets and kings long to see what you see, but they didn't see it. And they long to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. Um, and this is the thing that he says to his disciples right before he goes. Now, the phrases that he uses is very familiar to his Jewish disciples who had often heard the prophets talk about people who heard, who had ears to hear, but did not hear, or who had eyes to see, but did not, did not see. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make. He says, blessed are you guys because you have, you have eyes and you have seen, you have ears and you have heard. Uh, and in case you're not exactly sure what Jesus means by this, Jesus goes straight from this encouragement to his disciples about eyes that see and ears that hear to this story about a guy who had eyes but did not see and ears that did not hear. And that's in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. One day, this is Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking them this question. And I think the first thing I need to point out is that this guy's motives were not pure. He wasn't coming to Jesus asking a question out of sincere curiosity. He was wanting to test Jesus. And he asked them this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now that's not even a bad question. And truthfully, I would say that that's probably the most important question any person could ever ask. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? How can I be made right with God? Like you will spend 
far more time in eternity than you do on this side of eternity. So taking the opportunity on this side of eternity to prepare for the other side is the most important thing for you to get right in your entire life on this side of eternity. So the question is right. The motive was wrong. Jesus replied and says, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Well, he asked a lawyer, a religious lawyer, what the law says. So Jesus is asking a question that he knows the guy is going to get right. And, and he does. Here's his answer. How do you read it? And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength, and all of your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. The guy answered this religious question with the right religious answer. So his motives were bad, but his theology is good. And that brings me up to the first thought. It's not one of the main points of the teaching today, but it's my, my, my first thought. And, and here it is, that you can have the right theology and still have a bad heart. Your theology can be right while your heart is still wrong. And that does lead me to the first of three points in today's teaching, and that's this. Knowing the truth about God is not the same thing as being right with God. They're not the same thing. Like you can be right about God, but not be right with God. Jesus often confronted the uber-religious because they were focused on the wrong things. They were focused primarily with their theology, and I'm not saying that theology isn't important, but theology is as important as your response to it. Now, the guy's answer was actually something very common in the, Jew, the Jewish uh, community. And it was, uh, his answer was actually the prayer that they pray every morning when they woke up and when they went to bed every night. And it's called the Shema. Your Jewish friends and my Jewish friends in town, they know what the Shema is. And it's, it's the combination of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength, and all of your mind. And then Leviticus chapter 19 says that, that this is just as much, and that is that you Love your neighbor uh, as, as yourself. It's, it's the Shema. Uh, and, and they call it the Shema because the first word in that declaration is the word hear, O Israel, or, or listen. And the Hebrew word for listen is Shema. Now, the word Shema doesn't simply mean to hear. It means to hear and obey. Like there's you might not know, I didn't know this until studying for this weekend's teaching. There is not a Hebrew word for simply to hear. Like the, the word for hearing in Hebrew is to hear and respond, to listen and to do, to be instructed and then to obey. That's why the prophets would often say they have the ears to hear, but they don't, like they, the, the difference was not that you didn't point out that somebody heard and obeyed. It was assumed that if you heard, you obeyed. They actually pointed out when somebody heard, 
but didn't obey. Like that was the astonishing thing to me. Now, here's what's crazy about him referencing the Shema. The Shema is named the Shema because it starts with the word Shema, which is hear and obey. And when Jesus asked the guy the question and he answered with the Shema, he actually left out the Shema part of the Shema. He doesn't start with hear and obey this. He just starts off with what he knows is the right answer, regardless of his behavior. And Jesus catches this. Uh, The religious leader, expert, leaves out on purpose his responsibility to obey this teaching. Jesus picks up on the nuance of his answer and points it out by asking him, what does it say? Uh, and, and when he gives his answer, Luke chapter 10, verse 28 says this, right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. That was the part he was missing, was the doing part. He had the right answers. He did not have the right actions. Uh, do this and you will live. The man wanting to justify his actions uh, asked this question of Jesus. Well, who is my neighbor? So the religious expert picks up on Jesus's inference that he intentionally left out his responsibility to obey. So Jesus tells him, well, then you need to start doing this. And the guy kind of says, well, then who am I supposed to like, how can I love my neighbors myself? Like exactly who is my neighbor? I mean, like I can't do this for everybody all the time. So he almost asked, well, who is my neighbor in a rhetorical sense, right? Wanting to justify himself or Or maybe perhaps he was sincere because he wanted to. I don't know that he was sincere because it starts off by saying he was testing Jesus. And then he asked the question, not because he was looking for an answer, but because he was wanting to justify himself. And then Jesus gives him this story, regardless of the motive behind the question. Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus replied with who is my neighbor with this story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed by him. The temple assistant, or your translation, your English translation might say Levites, the same thing, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan smoothed, uh, soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine, uh, an antiseptic, and then bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he stayed and personally took care of him. Then the next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. And if his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm back, the next time I'm here, the next time I come back through town. So the essence of the story is that a man is going in the opposite direction in which Jesus is going. So Jesus is going uh, towards Jericho. He gets to Jericho in Luke chapter 19, by the way. Uh, and then there's like a, it's like a 15 mile walk from Jericho to Jerusalem. And during that 15 miles, you actually change the elevation uh, three miles. So it's, it's a steep incline. So this guy's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's going downhill. There's actually a place on this path that used to be called uh, 
uh, the corner, right, or the ravine of blood, uh, because that was the place that you were going to get jumped if you were going to get jumped. And sure enough, uh, this man, this businessman, or whatever he was doing, he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, gets jumped by bandits, by thieves, by robbers. They knock him down. They don't just take everything that he has. They beat the living tar out of the guy and leave him for dead. There's a lot of people that will make inferences about why the Levite passed by him or why the, the priest passed by him. And it doesn't even matter the motive why they passed by him. The point that he's trying to make is that the people who should have did not. And the person who didn't have to did is the point of the story. And that brings me to the second of, of two points in today's teaching. The first is that knowing the truth about God is not the same thing as being right with God. And the second point of the teaching today is this, that the quality of my relationship with God, with God is reflected in my treatment of other people. Now, the priest and the Levites uh, were actually from the same uh, tribe of, of Israel. They were both descendants of one of the 12 sons of, of Jacob. They were, they were the, the son of, of, of Levi. Uh, Levi was the son of Jacob, Jacob the son of Isaac, Isaac the son of Abraham. Twelve tribes in Israel. Uh, at this time, you knew which tribe you belonged to. And everybody who was of the tribe of Levi had temple responsibilities. But not everybody who was the tribe of Levi could be a priest. The only people who could be priests were the descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother. Now, Moses's brother, Moses and his brother were both in the tribe of Levi. They qualified as, as, as temple assistants. But because uh, uh, Mo, Aaron being the first uh, high priest, all of, all of the rest of the priests from then on, all the way up, even past the time of Jesus, had to be able to trace their lineage back, not just to Levi, the founder of their tribe, uh, within, within the household of Israel, but they had to be able to trace their lineage back to uh, Moses' family, back back to Aaron, the brother of Moses. Uh, now, the priest represented the people before God. That was his job, is that he went into the temple and performed the priestly duties of atoning uh, the, for the sins of, of the people of Israel. And then he would often represent God to the people. That was his job. That was what he did. But the idea that this was something that he only did at the temple representing the people to God or representing God to the people was what Jesus was trying to point out, that this guy's job was to represent God and his kingdom agenda in the world. And when he actually had the opportunity to do that outside of the temple, he did it because he saw his religious responsibilities as something that was compartmentalized when he was at a religious place. So here he is, the guy who represents the people to God. He's supposed to represent God to the people. And in representing God to the people, he's supposed to represent God's intentions, God's love, God's care for actual people, and then failed to do that. It reminds me of the story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18. Uh, it's just a little bit later uh, in this. It's, it's not 18, sorry. It's in Luke and in Mark chapter Mark chapter 11 is, is the place that I was, I was reading at it in preparation for the teaching where Jesus comes to this fig tree. And this is during the week between a Passover and Easter. And he sees a fig tree uh, in the distance and it's the season of the year for fig trees to be in bloom. Like there should not bloom, but there should be fruit on the fig tree. And when he gets to the fig tree and he sees that the fig tree, which his job is to produce fig fruit, 
didn't have any, he cursed it. They came back by that fig tree the next day and it had withered, having dried up from the roots uh, out, out to, the, uh, to the branches. And it's that same idea that Jesus is getting at, that this is somebody who should have the fruit of God and they're like, this is what they get paid to do. Like this is their job. And, and this guy didn't have any fruit when Jesus got to the tree or when the, when the tree gets to the moment when it's like ready to actually bear fruit in the real world, it had nothing to offer. The, um, the temple assistant, his job was to take care of the temple. Uh, he would be the one who took care of the sacraments, the different instruments that were used in worship. It was his job to help the families bring the sheep in to the priests who then would take the sheep on behalf of the people and offer that as a sacrifice to God. And then after the, the sheep was offered as a sacrifice, it would be handed back to a temple assistant. So this person's job was to take care of everything that was a part of worship or the house of God. Now, the idea that he would take care of things in the name of God, but not people in the name of God, is the thing that Jesus was trying to point out. It's similar to Jesus acknowledging the importance of the tithe in Matthew chapter 23 when he says to the religious leaders, he says, you guys tithe of everything. Like you don't, it's like if you won $5 at a scratcher, you would still take 50 cents and you would give an offering of that. So it's not just from your, 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 your income, your salary, your paychecks that you tithe off of. He says, you tithe off of like your, your fruit, your, your, your garden. You tithe off of mint and your cucumbers, he says. He says, but you've left off the way, like you're really good at taking care of all of the trappings of your religion without the substance of it. He says, you, you, you take, you tithe off of your, your garden, but you've left off the most important things like mercy, justice and faith. And Jesus telling this story and highlighting the irresponsibility or the disconnection between the priest and the temple assistant with their religion and how it translates to the way they actually treat people reminds me of how easy it is for me to claim to be a Christian when I'm at church and how difficult it is for me to behave like one when I'm not. Because it, it's easy for me to be a moral person when I'm surrounded by other people doing moral things. It's easy for me to sing when other people are singing. It's easy for me to worship when other people are worshiping. It's easier for me to, to pay attention to a sermon when I'm in a room full of other people paying attention to the sermon. But let me step outside of an environment where it's easy for me to be all of these things, where it's actually going to cost me something to own my faith. And that's where you're most likely to see Sean cross to the other side of the road to avoid letting his faith cost him anything. If being a follower of Jesus is going to call, call me to color outside of the lines that I said I was going to color in, to step up my game, to change my schedule, or to adjust my financial planning for my future, I don't know how Christian I want to be anymore. See, the problem, at least for me, is that sometimes I act as though my faith is more about my own improvement than it is the mission of Jesus, the restoration of God's kingdom through the rescue of those who are lost and the rearrangement of my entire life around that. I think as Christians, we work really hard to compartmentalize our faith 
or to make sure that our religion helps us achieve our, our agenda. And there's going to come a point in your relationship with God where he's going to call you to lay down your agenda and be willing to change your entire life. And at that point, you're going to have to decide if you're going to cross to the other side of the street so that you don't actually have to do what God's calling you to do. I think that's the point. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34 to 40, gives us the evidence of what it looks like to be somebody who is a child of God. And every bit of it calls for risk and inconvenience. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says that at the end of time, God will gather all people together and he will put the sheep, those who are his, on his right hand, and he will put the goats, those that are not his, on his left hand. Verse 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. Because I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. I referenced this passage of scripture last week. Verse 37 says, Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it for me. Those who have humbled themselves have called on the name of Jesus to forgive them, have accepted his death, his burial and resurrection as the only payment for their sins, actually begin to let go of their selfishness, take up a cross, and rearrange their lives around the priority of God. The rest of this passage then says what God says to those, who, the goats that are on his left side. And he says, you didn't do any of these things for me. You didn't do any of these things. Says, when did we not do those things for you? And he says, when you did not allow yourself to be put at risk, to be inconvenienced, either with your time or your money, to do the things that I put in front of you to do on any given day, you are not doing them for me. The difference between the sheep and the goats is not how much information they have about the shepherd. It's whether or not they're willing to rearrange their lives around the shepherd and his mission. And that brings me back to the Samaritan in the story and the third point in the teaching today, and that's this. When your heart changes, your actions will change also. Now, Samaritans have been around for, what, almost 800 years at this time in history. The Assyrians had come through um, and you can study this in a Wikipedia, right? Or in an in in ancient history book, you'll find this. But in, in 740 BC, the Assyrians come across the Fertile Crescent down into Israel and they conquer the northern 10 tribes of Israel. What they referred to at the time that Israel, the Jews were in two different nations. Uh, the northern nation was called Israel. The southern nation was called Judah. And they kidnapped all of the healthy and the strong and they, they took them back and they left the weak. The weak then became dispirited in their faith. They abandoned for a period of time uh, the law and began to disobey the scriptures and intermarried with the Gentiles around them. Uh, then, I want to say it's like 150 years later, something like that, uh, the Jews began to come back. At that point, they were now uh, uh, in exile in Babylon. And they come back 
to rebuild the temple under Ezra. That's a book in the Bible. And then 14 years later, they start to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And that's in the book of Nehemiah. And it was the Samaritans who tried to assassinate Nehemiah and keep the Jews from rebuilding. So the Jews had, the purebred Jews had moved, had been taken and had left the area. And now the mixed race Jews, the people who were hated by Jewish people and they were hated by Gentile people now have the run of the land. And when the Jews come back, the Samaritans took it on themselves to do everything in their power to keep the Jews from resettling in the area. Uh, about 400 and something years later, you get the story of the Maccabees. If you're Catholic, you might be more familiar with this passage of scripture or that, that, that scripture. Uh, but in 128 BC, the Jews led by a guy named Hyrcanus, John Hyrcanus, who is the nephew of Judas Maccabees, attacks Samaria and they had built their own temple on Shechem, uh, in Shechem, which was the site of Abraham's burial, uh, Isaac and Jacob, where they were buried. And Hyrcanus tears down their temple. And from that moment on, they were mortal enemies. They absolutely hated each other. Uh, there's a passage of scripture where the Pharisees wanting to insult Jesus with the worst swear word they could think of called Jesus. And they said, you are who we know you to be a demon possessed Samaritan. Like, and everybody was like, <gasps> Like that was like, that's like in, uh, do you remember that movie Sandlot where they say, you play, you hit, or was it you play ball? You spit like a girl, you, something like that it was like the worst thing. You, the worst thing they could possibly say to Jesus is you are a demon possessed Samaritans. They absolutely, they absolutely hated each other. But the Samaritan in the story was the only one who was willing to prioritize the man's need over his own comfort. Now remember that this story is the answer to the question who is my neighbor, which was in response to a man's defensiveness on what it looks like to be a devoted father of God, that you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, which we all have a hard time doing. The answer to the question is found in this hated Samaritan who didn't look at this situation through his race, through his experiences, through even the lens of how this man would treat him if the roles were reversed. The Samaritan saw the man's need and prioritized that over his own comfort. He put his life at risk by stopping. He put his agenda at risk by losing so much time. He put his, his uh, finances at risk to do what was right and to take care of the guy's need. The point is that the neighbor is the one who actually loves other people as much as themselves. See, it's easy for me to say that I love God. And it's easy for me to act like I love God when I'm around you. It's a completely different thing to prioritize God in what I do online, what I do with my money, whether or not I'm willing to forgive those who've hurt me. Do you see what I'm saying? Like it's easy for me to be the priest and the temple assistant. And it's not easy for me to be the Samaritan. It's just not. It's easy for me to say that I love my neighbor, but I don't want to stop and actually find out 
what their needs are or how they're hurting. <laughs> Especially if they annoy me, if I want to be honest. Listen to how the story ends. Luke chapter 10, verse 36 to 37. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? So Jesus tells the story and then he turns it back around on the guy. So the guy started this by just cramming it all in Jesus' face and Jesus ends it by going, now you tell me what you see. Which one of these guys is the neighbor? Jesus asked and the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, then go do that. Now I wish the story ended with a, and then the man recognized how he had fallen far, far short of God's standard, was moved with humility, humbled himself and called on God to forgive him and save him. And then his life was forever changed, but it isn't. In fact, the story doesn't have an ending. It just moves straight from there to the next event that happened in Jesus's journey down to Jerusalem. There is no ending. The guy doesn't do this. The guy, while being religious, had missed the point of his religion. There's another story in the scriptures in Luke chapter 18, and I'm, I'm just gonna read it briefly, and this will be the last passage of scripture that we look at. But then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everybody else. And there are people that we scorn if we're going to be completely honest, right? There are people that we look down on. There are people that I look at and then I say, I'm a good person because I'm not like those people. And to people like me, Jesus tells this story, there are two people who went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood off by himself and he prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like these other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I'm not like that Democrat. I'm not like that Republican. I'm not like that undocumented immigrant. I'm not like that person who's unemployed. I'm not like that uneducated. I'm not like that woman who has four kids from four different men that she's never been married to. I thank you, God, that I've not been divorced twice. I thank you, God, that I'm not like, and to insert all of the people that you and I both say to God, I thank you, I'm not like them. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, oh dear God, be merciful to me because I am a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this, this sinner not the Pharisee returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The problem is not that you do what God asks you to do, like praying, like tithing, like worshiping, like going to church, like listening to sermons, like, like being around other followers of Jesus or going to life group or finding ways in which to serve in a crew of other followers of Jesus in the household of faith or in the community. That's not the problem. The problem isn't that I actually do the things that are good for me to do. Those aren't the problem. The problem is that my obedience can begin to twist my heart away from others onto how awesome I am. When you and I stop seeing people as the image bearers of God, like we talked about last week, that God is pursuing, 
I start to see people through the lens of other things, like their politics, like their morality. And what I need most is a change of heart. The truth is, I don't need more money to be generous. I don't need more time to be compassionate. I need to get to a place where I'm willing to beat on my own chest in sorrow, saying, Dear God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I am yours for whatever you want, wherever you want, whenever you want. To wrap this up, I want to highlight that the question that the guy started off with was not a bad question. It's the right question. And maybe that's the question you need to ask. God, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And I think Jesus would say, if this is about what you do, I'm going to put a standard that I know for a fact you'll never meet. And that is that you always love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you never don't do that. And I also want you to always love every single person you ever meet as much as you love yourself. Now, if this is on you, what you have to do to inherit eternal life, Jesus was telling the truth. This is what you have to do. But if you and I are going to be completely honest, the truth is I can't meet that standard. And what that should do is not, that's supposed to move me off the position of self-righteousness into a place where I can actually pray, dear God, I'm sorry for all of the ways in which I have not prioritized you in my life. Dear God in heaven, I am sorry for all of the ways in which I see myself as having greater value than others. Dear God, forgive me, for I am a sinner. That should be your prayer. Another question you could ask is, does your knowledge of the scriptures match your obedience to it? You can know all the right answers and not be right with God. Another question would be, if I were to see, uh, if all I saw was the way that you treat other people who aren't like you, would I say that you are definitely a follower of Jesus? If you're a Republican, could I look at the things that you say in your Facebook about Democrats? If you're a Democrat, could I look at the things that you say about Republicans? If you are for open borders, could I look at the things you said about those who want closed borders and those who have closed borders? What would you say about the, do you see what I'm saying? Like we're dividing over things in ways that give us a sense of superiority over other people that is actually moving us away from the people that God has called me to be. I can't let your politics keep you from feeling loved by me. And while as a private citizen of this country, I may have an opinion on immigration, the truth is I can never change my opinion on you. Like I can't. And I have an obligation, regardless of my politics, to leverage everything at my disposal for the glory of God and the good of everybody around me so that they someday may have a chance to come to know and to follow Jesus also. And then rather than recommitting myself to doing something different this week, can you and I begin praying and asking God to change our heart about the way we feel toward the things that we're doing this week? Maybe my focus isn't this week on working to change my actions, but just begging God to change my heart. Because maybe if God would soften my heart toward myself and my arrogance and pride and my selfishness, then maybe my actions would be more like Jesus.
Let's pray. God, I love you with all of my heart and I'm thankful for the story and I hate the way I see myself in it. Um, I like to think of myself as the Samaritan because I do good, but truthfully in doing good, I feel so great about myself. <laughs> Superior and, and proud. And in that way, God, I'm, I'm really more like the priest or the temple assistant. God, help us to recognize that our theology while important, uh, isn't, doesn't guarantee the rightness of our relationship with you. God, help us to get to the place where we would beat our chest and say, dear God, forgive me for I am a sinner. God, I pray that the things that we do and the way that we treat people match the things that we say that we believe. God, I pray that your will is done in our lives. And for that to happen, I really do believe you're gonna have to start changing our hearts and let that be our prayer too. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.